Good morning, everyone. It is a pleasure to meet together and to sing praises to our great God. So if you could turn to Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1, we'll get to that. Would you agree that a good rule to follow when you read or hear a report is to consider the source? There's an undeniable connection between the trustworthy character of the one speaking and the truth of what they say. There's definitely a connection. It's also wise to think about someone's area of expertise if they're weighing in on a subject. For instance, uh, the word of a surgeon has a lot more credibility when it comes to a medical prognosis than a brickie. And I would take the word of a brickie on how to make a fireplace and design it over a salesman. I mean, you want to consider who's talking to you about a particular claim. And the trustworthiness of people's words and their credibility is definitely called into question in a court of law. If, if they can find, if a solicitor can find something in the past or maybe some dubious or false claims that the witness has made, they can discredit them because they can show that, well, they've told lies in the past. Who knows that they're telling the truth now? And it's good for us to consider the source, but it's good also to consider what sort of source am I to others? What sort of things comes out of my mouth? Is my, is my mouth a source of gospel truth? Is my life something that is trustworthy? Is it consistent? Are the things that I say um, aligning with what I do? And am I faithful to say things that are uh, really direct concerning Jesus Christ and the scripture. One thing we learn early in our lives is to tailor our words to suit our audience. So depending on whom we're speaking to, we may speak a little differently. Think about yourself as a, as a young person. If you're talking to your best friend or your grandmother, you would speak to them in a different way. You would speak to an old friend a bit different than a new coworker you would maybe not divulge some things that you would already have history on you could freely talk about with someone else. There's nothing wrong with this, of course. We see Paul employing this discernment when he spoke to a group of uh, Pharisees and Sadducees when he was on trial. He looked out, he saw, hey, Sadducees and Pharisees, they disagree about things, and in one sentence, he was able to turn them all against each other and... He really didn't have to say anything else that whole day. They're like half of the sides, like, "Oh, if he's seen a, if he's seen something, let's not argue with God and the other the other people." So, depending on who we're talking to, it makes sense and it's reasonable that we would consider our audience. But the consideration of our audience also has a negative side. We might shy away from saying something from what we believe because we're concerned about how they may respond to it, whether they'll agree with it or not. And instead of being bold to speak the truth, we can remain silent or dilute it to a point that it really doesn't have any uh, value as God's word anymore. And so today we see a good example of how the Holy Spirit makes Christians bold to speak the truth, regardless of who you're speaking to. And that's something I have room to grow in. I think probably we all do, to some respect, have room to grow. And so may we be those who are a vocal and pure source of God's truth, that that's what people are going to hear when they talk to you. They're going to hear the word of God and the truth of God and the wisdom of God as we open our mouths to speak. 
The things we say may offend some, but it will save others. And if we're convinced of that, then we'll be bold, as we'll see Peter and John were. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word. Thank you that we have this opportunity to study it together. Thank you, Lord, that you send the Holy Spirit to fill us, and I pray that you would fill us with your spirit even now, that as I speak, it would be your word going forth, that you would touch each heart, that our hearts would be ready to receive from you all that you have prepared for us, and that your word would be fruitful in our lives. We praise you, Lord, that you are an awesome God. You are great and, above all, worthy to be praised. Your word is trustworthy. You are faithful, and your word cannot be broken. So may we place our feet upon it. May we speak about our Savior boldly, and may we walk in your ways in Jesus' name. Amen. A little background on where we are this morning. Peter and John, they were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, about 3 p.m., walking up to the temple where they saw a, a lame man who had been carried there to beg at the gate. And not having silver or gold, Peter gets the man's attention. He says, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise and walk. And he grabbed him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and the man, his ankle bones receive strength. He starts walking, leaping, and praising God, and they enter the temple together. So this is miraculous healing. People run from all over to see what the commotion's about. And they, they're amazed to see this well-known beggar um, walking around. And they're thinking, what can this be? And Peter seizes the opportunity then to preach. And he preached Jesus Christ, that they were guilty of uh, crucifying the Lord, and that they needed to repent. Many people heard the word and did repent. And uh, this is where we come to, after they had been doing this for several hours, so it's 3 p.m. when this miraculous healing occurs. Peter's been speaking, and we'll, re- we'll see that it's now evening. So this has been going on in the temple court for quite a while in Acts 4, verse 1. Now as they spoke with the people, to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. The healed man, he's walking, leaping, and praising God. Everyone's glorifying God and amazed at what they've seen. But not everyone's happy. The Sadducees, they had been listening in on what was going on. They had noticed this crowd gathering in the temple. Uh, these men addressing a crowd of people that seemed to be building. People were talking. People were attracted to it. And they they hung around on the fringes and I'm sure took counsel and talked about what we're going to do. They're talking about Jesus. And this is not on. And so it says they were greatly disturbed that they, number one, taught the people. Here are these people talking about Jesus and they're teaching them. And number two, teaching them about Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. That's something the Sadducees did not believe in. They didn't believe anything spiritual. They really saw religion as a means of personal gain. They were um, they delight, denied any afterlife, spirit, or resurrection. It was a group of the aristocratic, wealthy elite, quite comfortable to support Roman rule. They saw religion as a means of gain, more concerned about politics than religion, really, and used their connections to... In, enrich themselves. I mean, they didn't believe in heaven or hell, 
And so that was all they were living for, was what they could get out of life. These chief priests, you see, the priests, the captains of the temple, the Sadducees, they were ones who had condemned Jesus for blasphemy just a couple of months before. And so they weren't happy that now they wanted to get rid of Jesus, and now they're talking about Jesus in the temple. And so they laid hands on them, and it says they arrested them. They arrested Peter, John, the lame man who had been healed by Jesus. And this fulfilled the word that Jesus spoke to his disciples in Luke 21.12 when he said, They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. Now, this message, it really disturbed those, greatly disturbed those who hated Jesus. But the passage says, however, many of those who heard the word believed. Witnessing the healing was amazing, but it was in hearing the word of God that people received salvation. They were converted. God's word is a critical element in people being saved from sin and death. That is indispensable. Your word is one voice among many that's easily drowned out and swayed by opinions. Your word is powerless to save a single soul, but God's word will save everyone who obeys and trusts Jesus Christ. If you want to see people saved, you have to speak forth the word of God. That's the bottom line, and we see that time and time throughout Scripture. And consider this, you might be the only source of the word of God someone hears. People who don't go to church, people who don't read the Bible, people who don't have a podcast, people who never listen to a sermon talk to you every day. You have conversations with people who never talk about God, and you are the one source of God's word that they can hear it. Are they hearing it? And this I take to heart. Are, am, am I someone that speaks forth gospel truth? when I interact with people on a common, everyday basis. Life and death, the Bible says, is in the power of the tongue. People who confess and repent the Lord, confess Christ as Lord, trusting in Him, will be raised from death to life. The priests and Sadducees, it says, weren't happy with the message, but we read that 5,000 people were now part of the church. So it had been 3,000 the Pentecost. It's now swelled up to 5,000, and this is just the men. So there's quite a number of people who had received Christ. The good word fell on hard ground, the hard ground of the Sadducees that day, but it also fell on good ground, people who would receive it and be saved by it. If we want fruit, we have to sow seed. If you want to harvest, you have to plant something. You can't have a harvest unless you plant something. And if we want a spiritual harvest, we must sow the word of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Acts 4, verse 5. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? The next day, Peter, John, and the previously lame man, I kind of don't know what to call him now, the walking man, 
Uh, now they're brought before this group of rulers, and they did not have a sympathetic ear in the assembly. I don't believe there was one person who was really sympathetic to the things they were having to say, having taken counsel against them, and they put them in the middle. It's kind of like uh, they're surrounded on all sides. It's a very intimidating situation. You have priests, captain of the temple, the Sadducees. They're greatly disturbed. When, when other people are disturbed, do you find that it can make you a bit disturbed? Yeah, especially when those people have a lot of power and authority, and they're pretty upset by the things that you've done and said. And there you are. You've been in prison all night, and now you have to answer before them. Not just that group of people, but more. There's rulers, elders, scribes. You have John, Alexander. I don't know those guys. The family of the high priest. Annas and Caiaphas. Now, these are this is the high priest and his father-in-law. They were the ones that Jesus was brought to their home, and he, they condemned Christ to be crucified. These were the very same high-powered rulers that was behind the disciples hiding and locking themselves away after Jesus' crucifixion, right? It said they, they locked the doors for the fear of the Jews. It was these Jews. These were the people they were afraid of when they were hiding. Let's just say there were a lot of reasons for Peter, John, and the previously lame man to be greatly disturbed. Would you have been disturbed if you had been called before this assembly? I would have been. These had the power to ostracize, to imprison, to torture, and to kill. All of that, they had this power. And they stood in front of these leaders and they're asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? But when they stood there, no, they were not standing alone. Jesus was standing with them. The Holy Spirit filled them with boldness and they had no fear. They weren't worried about what was going to happen to them. They were going to proclaim Christ, as Peter does in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be made known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before, here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Like on the day of Pentecost, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is as Jesus prophesied in Mark thirteen eleven when he said, But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he addresses these rulers. And the first thing he says, you know, it's a bit bizarre that we would be, you know, in trouble for doing something good to this helpless man. But if you really want to know why he's standing here whole, he minces no words. He says, it's by the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. He's the one who's behind this. He's the power. He's the name. So he lays it out there. That's why this man is standing here whole, because of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. 
whom God raised from the dead. The resurrection of the dead. This is the thing the Sadducees are not wanting to hear, and he's telling them this again. Now, if you were to compare the addresses of Peter recorded in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, and now in Acts chapter 4, you'll see that they were to three different audiences, but the message is exactly the same. Didn't change. Didn't matter if he was talking to people who uh, who heard them speak in tongues and, and devout Jews from every nation under heaven. Or if it were was the people who saw the man miraculously healed and they gathered together in Solomon's porch to hear what was going on. Or to these rulers in the Sanhedrin. The message was exactly the same. That Jesus Christ, he was the Messiah sent by God who had been rejected and crucified. They were all guilty of his blood and that God had raised him from the dead. And they needed to repent. So it's the same substance every time. He spoke clearly that Jesus is the only way of salvation. There were no hints. There were no subtle allusions. No dancing around the point. He was bold, direct, unrestrained in what he said. There was no no confusion because he was saying it very plainly. When we are, some people are, are quite indirect in their communication. Other people are much more direct. Uh, maybe they're, they're seen as a bit blunt or even rude because of your bluntness. And others can be so indirect that us more direct people have no idea what's going on. You just start staring into the sky and just going, what are we talking about? I don't get it. It's not concrete enough for me. I, I don't, I'm not drawing the conclusion that you're, what are you saying? You know, that's, that's me. I get a bit confused. And no matter how direct a communicator we are, when it comes to communicating things of God, that's when we can become a bit indirect. We can start dancing, start alluding, start uh, second-guessing and thinking, well, how are they going to take this? And so I'm going to adjust it and kind of feel it out whether they're going to receive what I'm going to say. And once I've tested the water, you know, is that how you get in the pool? You, you try with the foot first, or do you just jump in? Well, Peter just jumps in. And he doesn't care if he splashes everyone there, like a big cannonball. Get everyone soaking wet. A big bomb so that they can just hear the truth. And he's putting it out there. And there's something about this that is, is needed in all of our lives in a greater degree. Not to be rude, not to be forceful, that we would uh, force our will upon someone else, but that we would be clear in conveying the truth of God's word to others. There's something in all of our hearts, I believe, that longs to do that. Let's take to heart our need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because this wasn't just Peter talking. This was the Holy Spirit through Peter. Peter was happy to speak about things before. And he often said the wrong thing. I remember when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's seeing like Jesus glorified. And he's like, this is awesome. We should build a tabernacle for you and Elijah and Moses. And then it says, he said this because he was afraid and didn't know what to say. There's Peter. Doesn't know what to say, so he starts saying something. And this is what we can do. Don't know what to say, so we just start talking. Kind of working through it. 
instead of being led by the Spirit as he is here, and he's direct, he's to the point, and he's saying the necessary things that God has prompted him to because God is fulfilling his word. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, not just to the, the, the travelers, but to the rulers. It's not for us to decide if people are desirous to hear the truth or not, but following his leading, we need to say the truth. When he gives you an audience, not saying shout at people, but when God gives you an audience and he gives you someone to talk to, talk about him. Talk about his truth. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is identified here as the stone rejected by the builders. Knowing this, let's turn to Psalm 118, starting in verse 19, and we'll read the immediate context. So Psalm 118, starting in verse 19. We probably could have read more of this passage, but this is enough that gives us a a flavor of the context. Psalm 118, starting in verse 19, it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is the door, right? He is the gate through which we enter. If we want to go to heaven, we must go through him. He is the righteous one. He is the way, the truth, and life. No one goes to the Father except through him. Where it says, I will praise you for you have answered me. That that reminds me of what was spoken in Psalm 22. Where he's crying out because the, the bulls of Bashan have surrounded him. And it says, and you have answered me. So that's a great connection. When the temple was built, stone was quarried from far away. In fact, when Solomon built the temple, it was important to him that there would not be the sound of a hammer or any loud knocking on the temple mount at all. So they had a set of plans, and they would deliver these set of plans to a builder and also to the person in the quarry. So the people in the quarry would quarry the stone, and they would transport it over large distances, these great stones, large distances to have them placed in the right alignment. It was like those at the quarry following the plan, they cut out a stone, and they deliver it all this way, and the builders go, what's this? Subpar. This is this won't work. And just putting it off to the side, rejected by the builders. So it's been quarried, it's been sent, but maybe the builders weren't following the plans. Maybe they doubted. They're like, you know what? Let's just change this. We don't like it. For whatever reason, the builders did not use that stone. And he says, well, that's Jesus. It's like God gave you his law. He gave you his plans. God sent the Savior as he designed him to be. God who became flesh and dwelt among us, we have beheld his glory, but you deemed him substandard and you rejected him. You refused him and crucified him. But God has exalted him. Not only was he important to the building of the structure, the foundations of the church even, but he is the chief cornerstone. This was the most important stone. So the chief cornerstone was the one, you know, you have a a level foundation, right? Well, this stone 
was to be aligned that every other stone was built off of it. It was your standard. Jesus is God's perfect standard. And he was delivered for the people, but they refused to build. But he says, God, it's still true what God has done. Jesus is that chief cornerstone. I think the NIV says capstone. That's the most high elevated stone. It's the one that um, is on high. And Jesus is the one who has been uh, both foundational and exalted above all. So that's pretty strong to say that to the rulers. Hmm. Acts 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. It seems the content of Peter's address went right over their heads, right in one ear, out the other. Primarily, it was their boldness that got their attention. The boldness of Peter and John amazed them for they had this confidence and bluntness and were completely unintimidated by this show against them. It'd be one thing if they were an orator or a solicitor or someone trained to speak publicly, but these were fishermen from Galilee. And there they are in the midst of this great assembly of doctors and lawyers and rulers who had power, who could cut them off from Israel. But these fishermen did not flinch. They knew that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were in awe how clearly and plainly and boldly they spoke. They weren't like a red-faced, flustering guy who decided, you know, I'm going to defend myself in court. And he's got his notes and he's kind of in over his head. He doesn't really, he's like, oh, kind of fumbling around and uh, a recess, please, you know, a break. Because he just had no idea what he was getting into. That's not the case. These guys are in charge. They have like this authority that the the rulers are like, where did this come from? They're not kowtowing. They're not apologizing. They're not trying to save face. They're not buttering them up before they tear them down. They're not begging for leniency. Nothing. They're just saying the truth and the truth that they know the rulers don't want to hear. These men had never been trained in universities. They were untrained and ignorant. The word um, literally is ignoramus, which means stupid, literally without knowledge. So he's like, here are these ignorant, stupid, untrained people. Like, it's an extremely strong word. It would be like an illiterate man rattling off Shakespeare's sonnets to literary masters. Someone who can't read, quoting the scripture word for word, and it actually connecting with what they were saying. They're like, how can this happen? What is going on? So they seem to be more amazed right now, listening to these guys, and the fact that there was a guy who was lame, who was carried from his mother's womb to the gate every day, and now he's walking. They're blown away by these guys because of their boldness. And then they realize something. They had been with Jesus. This was true. For many years, they had walked with Jesus. They had sat under his teaching. They had obeyed his guidance. They had served with him. But there was something these rulers did not understand. Jesus was with them. They hadn't just walked with Jesus past tense. They were walking with Jesus. 
and the Holy Spirit was empowering them to do supernaturally what was totally foreign to their natural selves. They were speaking in a way that was so impossible that they were just in awe of it. They were shocked. Peter had a Galilean accent. Remember when he denied Jesus? And uh, someone said in Mark 14, 70, Surely you are one of them, for you are Galilean. Your speech shows it. So it's not the... uh, That may have made it even more remarkable. There's these fishermen from Galilee, and yet their accent does not get in the way. They're able to hear the word of God. I like that they weren't hindered by a lack of formal training, nor would formal education have discredited them as ministers. Because we see Paul, it's very likely Paul the Apostle, who was breathing out threats, he was there that day. It doesn't say it in the Bible, but it's, it's very likely he was numbered among those rulers who gave his voice against them. Because these men walked with Jesus in the present, they were empowered to do wonders and to speak boldly the truth of God. And there stood the man who used to be lame, and they could say nothing against it. What could they say? They couldn't explain it. Those who've been with Jesus will be clear as we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. There's no substitute for time spent with Jesus. We too can spend time with Jesus through prayer, through reading the word, through fellowship with believers, through denying ourselves to follow him. And so I want to ask you, do you spend time daily with Jesus? Would your speech betray you, even as Peter's speech betrayed that he was a Galilean, that our speech would betray that we have spent much time with Jesus, that we know him? It would have been very easy for Peter and John to neglect times of prayer or fellowship because they were so conditioned to have Jesus physically there with them. Though he was far away, they continued to pray steadfastly. Have you ever found that when your routine is broken up, it's it's harder to spend time in the Word and in prayer? When the normal routine is a bit off-kilter, let's say you've gone away, or you're not having to get up as early to go to work, and so your quiet time is moved around, and, and so it, it gets it changes... That happens for me. When they walked through Israel with Jesus, it was routine to see him every day, to talk with him every day. But now that he's not around, they had to take time to spend time with Jesus, particularly, intentionally. And so may that be for us too. Even during this holiday season, during Christmas and New Year's, and whether we're going here or there, people coming over, um, things are a bit off, the normal routine, let's make that our routine and our priority that we would spend time with Jesus. Even on our days off, spending time with Jesus would be key. Verse 15. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. Peter, John, and the 
healed men were sent outside for a little recess. They're discussing the matter. Well, what do we do now? What are we going to do to these guys? There's such blindness in them, blindness that is common to all men. Without the grace of God, we would be numbered among them. They are not denying that a miracle had taken place. They, in fact, confirmed that a miracle had taken place, but the implications of that seem to just go right over them. They don't really lay hold of the fact that, hold on, a miracle's been done, a notable miracle that no one can deny. Here are these guys boldly speaking, and it's in the name of Jesus Christ who's risen from the dead. And instead of seeing this as a need to repent or, hey, guys, we need to start, we need to really reevaluate our theology here. <laughs> they didn't look to the scriptures or anything. They just go, how can we quiet this down? How can we squash this so that no one else hears about it? McGee wrote in his commentary through the Bible, he says, Unbelief is not from a lack of facts. It is a condition of the human heart. And it's true what Jesus said. If man will not hear the law or the prophets, they won't believe even if someone is raised from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead. I mean, what bigger miracle could you possibly ask for? And yet people just sought to subvert it and to silence it rather than believe. They kept rejecting Jesus. They rejected Jesus while he walked with them. They, re- they didn't reject the fact that a miracle had happened, but they rejected to repent, and they rejected Jesus in believing him. They refused to do that. So they wanted to conceal it. It says in verse 18, And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. The council agreed that severely threatening them was the right course of action. Interestingly, that's the sort of thing that would have worked on them. The threat of having public opinion turned away from them, that was fearful. So they go, well, let's threaten them. Let's really put the screws to them. Let's make them really uncomfortable so that they will not speak in this name anymore. They won't even speak the name of Jesus. Don't speak in this name. What name? (laughs) Jesus' name. Peter and John put them on the defensive right away. They say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. You who claim to love God and know God, is it better to hear man's word or God's word? Who should you listen to? Go, oh, listening to God, that's, that's what we do all the time. Again, they had nothing to say then. Many times in the scripture, these uh, leaders were described as not publicly confessing Christ because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Many of the synagogue rulers, they would not confess Jesus publicly because they didn't want anyone to oppose them. We have to decide if we are going to listen to God more than men, if we love the praise of God more than the praise of men, and if we will heed God's words 
social convention, or man's judgments? What will it be? Will we heed God's word or man's word? Who are we going to listen to? Who are we going to obey? It's very easy for us to say that we'll obey, and it's better to listen and obey God rather than men while we're sitting in a church on Sunday morning. But it's quite different when people have the power to intimidate and, and in one sense, control your life. I remember that feeling very well when I went, uh, I don't know how many years ago this was, probably six years, went to go pick up Pastor Drew at the airport when he first visited us, and he was traveling on a tourist visa. And he made the mistake of saying that he was planning to teach. Now, that means something very different to immigration than what it meant to him. He was just going to talk in a Bible study to, to share the word of God. He wasn't working for money. But in their mind, he was on a tourist visa intending to do paid work. So I'm waiting at the airport. It's been like two hours. And I'm like, oh, oh, I did arrive. And, and I get a phone call. And it's this lady from immigration. She's like, is this Ben? I'm like, yeah. Do you know this Drew McIntyre? Y- yes, I do. What will he be doing while he's there with you? Uh, he's going to be teaching? Like, uh, she was very incensed. I was very intimidated because at the time I was here on a temporary visa and she made it very clear that this was a black record on my, my, my public and, well, I guess my government record and my, um, permanent record. And that she had the power to turn him around right now and send him home. And she made me promise, literally, I had to promise that he would do no teaching or else he would not be admitted into the country. And so I did. I said, okay, yeah, he, he's not going to teach, is what I said. And I was very uneasy after receiving that call. But later on in this passage, Acts 4, 29 and 30 came to mind where it says, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. By stretching out your hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So instead of teaching, Drew talked with friends. He visited friends and spoke of our great God. And I learned a lot through this experience because we have to decide if we're going to fear God or we're going to fear men. When people seek to intimidate you to know that You don't control my future. God controls my future. My future is in his hands. You may have a very high government position, and you have authority, yes, but God's authority is greater than all, and we must fear him. We must obey him and not be afraid because it's in our hearts to be afraid. So the disciples responded, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge, but we cannot, for we cannot speak the things which we have seen and heard. So Peter and John boldly spoke of Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. They had been with Jesus. No threat is going to deter them from saying the truth. They were eyewitnesses of what Jesus had done and said, and they would be his witnesses. Now this boldness we see in them It's not naturally in us concerning the things of God. Concerning the things of God is right. That's like the the division. 
If it's talking about even my personal life, how things are in the world, how the footy team's going, those things are easy to talk about. But as soon as you start intentionally talking about God, there's a difference, isn't there? Where you start second-guessing yourself. You start thinking about um, when is the right time to say something? How should I broach this subject? Um, we start faltering. We start second-guessing. And when we do that, we, we tend to be silent. And I'm speaking for myself. I tend to be silent. If I start second-guessing myself, I'm really unsure about what to say at the time, how to respond. Usually, not, not responding is the out. Now, just to show you how this is true, have you ever witnessed an accident and, as an eyewitness, had to give an account of the details? And maybe not before a policeman or someone, like a law, in law, but you just were recounting what you had seen to someone else. Was that a potentially embarrassing or uncomfortable thing to do, to just wit to say what you had seen? I remember once Laura and I had visited a graduation uh, for a boy who was graduating from high school. The ceremony was taking place, and, and on the ovals in the States, it'll typically be a track like for running track and field, and there'll be a football field or soccer ground inside. And uh, they had the ceremony on in the middle of the pitch. Now, seating is quite limited in these events, and we had arrived at a time where we just decided to stand by the side. Suddenly, the speaker's voice is drowned out. There's the sound of these dirt bikes, and two hoons who had graduated, I found out, the previous year, were just off-roading and tearing around and just creating this huge dust storm. and I mean, it was really distracting. It was just, it was lakeside. And if you've ever been to lakeside, you would know what I mean. But it was all happening. Um, so they tried, they said, all right, let's shut these boys down. Because they were just creating this, everyone's distracted, everyone's looking over. And there's this huge, you know, they're tearing around. So they closed the gates. Boys get off their bikes, decide they're going to run for it when they see the police and went into a gate that had been closed, and there was this poor man who was standing there. It hits him in the back, knocks him unconscious. He falls straight to his face. One guy gets through, gets away. Someone else, they tackle him. I mean, it was like full on. So Laura and I are meters away from all this happening, and uh, the police arrive. They're taking statements. No one is ashamed to talk about what they saw to give their vantage point on what happened. Oh, no, no, this happened. And that's right when he did this. And everyone's just piling in, right? Everyone's volunteering information. Even the people who aren't the ones being addressed by the policeman, everyone's just giving their two cents about what's happened. They're like, oh, yeah, and then he did this and that. And There was no embarrassment. There was no shame. There was a lot of excitement that day, unfortunately. People were eager to discuss it. And after the fact, it was very easy to bring it up in casual conversation because it made the news. You know, and the, they've got the ambulance showing up and they've got these guys that were the one that got away was arrested the next day. This is all in the news. But it was very easy to talk about that. But you start talking about Jesus Christ and it's we find it's not so easy. At that moment, none of us were thinking about how is the right time. What details are the most important that the policeman... You know, and we can do that with with Scripture. We can say, uh, 
You know, like, what's the right time to talk to somebody? What's the perfect scripture? What's ev- having the answer to every single uh, objection before I'll muster up the courage to, to just talk about Jesus? And we get all funny about it. I can be funny about it, but brothers and sisters, this ought not to be. Because we have been with Jesus. We know of whom we speak. His spirit is within us and we have his word. And there's no formula to approaching someone. These guys were just going to prayer meeting. They were heading to a prayer meeting and God just orchestrated these events that there's this man miraculously healed. They're now brought before the, the Sanhedrin to, and they boldly gave the same message they'd been giving till then. If we're witnesses of his resurrection power in our lives and in the lives of others, we have a testimony. We have great things to say. Because we know him. We walk with him. And he stands with us and enables us to stand. Verse 21 and 22 concludes, So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. The beginning of chapter 3, it tells us the man who had been healed was lame from birth and that he was daily laid at the gate. So these holy men, right, these rulers, they had walked past this guy. They had walked past him day after day after day. Daily led, daily at the gate, and from birth he had been lame. So a lot of times they had walked past him. But here he's standing right there in the midst because of Jesus Christ. A definite miracle. Every human being, though, is born spiritually lame. Dead in sins from birth, but faith in Jesus makes us born again. Jesus lifts us and stands us on our feet. And we can be quite lame concerning spiritual things. Quite lame about sharing the gospel, quite lame with being bold to speak when there's that still small voice that prompts you to just say a scripture and you're like, well, wait a second, is this really the right time for that? And then we don't. After we are genuinely born again, we can suffer from lameness in various ways. But when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, when we're waiting on the Lord, when we spend time with Jesus, the Holy Spirit gives us what to say in every situation, whether we're speaking to beggars or to the rulers of the nation, we can know that God will speak if we'll be bold enough to speak. Proverbs 16.9, it says this, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. I think it's so cool. These guys plan to go to a prayer meeting. That was their plan. But God had something orchestrated that they did not know, but they were prepared for. Can you imagine if they had known the day before, you're going to be appearing before the rulers of the nation? How would they have slept that night? How would you have slept if tomorrow was the big day? Life and death. I mean, these are the people who killed Jesus. Now you've got to talk to them. They've got some questions to ask you. They're putting the screws to you. Oh boy, that would have been pretty hairy. But they were prepared because God was with them in real time. 
And may our lives be like this, that no matter what we're doing, we could just be going to a prayer meeting and something can happen that was orchestrated by God, where there's a miraculous healing, where there's an opportunity to share the truth of God's word, the power of Jesus Christ. I mean, we make plans, but God directs our steps. Jesus opens doors none can shut. He shuts doors none can open. And through the Holy Spirit, we can walk through those doors and have the strength to stand. So may we be as uh, Peter and John. They were committed to spend time with Jesus. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And may that mark our lives too during this time. Praise the Lord, he has come to us. That's, that's one of the beautiful things about Christmas is remembering that Jesus has come. He has come to us because he wants to spend time with us. He wants to dwell in the midst of his people and he wants to inhabit his people. And so may he live in us and through us now and forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for the power of it to save lives. And I pray we would be bold, Lord, not in our flesh, not in the kind of boldness that comes from the flesh, but through the Holy Spirit, so that you would speak through us, you would do your wonders, that we would not be intimidated by the unbelief of others or by people's hatred of you, but we would decide to boldly open our mouth for your glory and to speak the truth of your salvation. May our mouths, Lord, and our lives be a source of gospel truth for others, that we might lead them to living water so that they could drink and be satisfied and enjoy life and perfect peace forever. So thank you, Lord, again for raising us up, for delivering us from our lameness, and I pray that you would continue to show us how we can fully submit ourselves to you and boldly speak what you have commanded. In Jesus' name, amen.